Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Ecclesiastes chapter 11. So for several weeks now, we've been engaged in this examination of the book of Ecclesiastes, and we will conclude this study next, uh, next Sunday night as we do Ecclesiastes chapter 12, and we do hope you'll join us for that. And as we've been mentioning for a few weeks now, we will take a break from the, the roundtable format after next Wednesday and do a series of sermons with each one of us presenting a sermon in that series. And uh, we'll have more information about that next Sunday night. And we will return, Lord willing, to this roundtable format again in the future, uh, but we're just going to take a brief interlude from it. Tonight we come to Ecclesiastes chapter 11, and, and the first thing you may notice is that this, by verse count, is the shortest chapter in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's only 10 verses long. And, and so there's not much uh, as far as volume here in chapter 11, but as we've discovered throughout uh, the study of Ecclesiastes, that doesn't mean it will be lacking in content. So we're going to break this up into just two sections tonight. We're going to start by looking at the first six verses, and then we'll uh, discuss those verses, and then we'll look at verses 7 through 10 and discuss those. So if you will, read with me from verse 1 through verse 6 as we get started tonight. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves in the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. This is an interesting section. It, it, it has some uh, statements throughout it that are just kind of like, what are you talking about, Solomon? In fact, verse 1 stands out to me, cast your bread on the waters, for you will find it after many days. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense when I first hear it. I mean, if I throw bread out on water, it's not going to be good a few days later. It's not going to be edible, useful, or anything. So what is Solomon saying right here at the start in this very first verse of the chapter? Well, I, I actually think what Solomon's trying to communicate, uh, at least in part, is the idea that, that there needs to be some degree of, of generosity in your life. And I, I think that's the idea he's trying to get to, particularly because of what he says in verse 2 about giving a portion to seven or even to eight for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. See, as, as, as I was studying this, people, many scholars have different uh, interpretations of, of what these two uh, verses are referring to, but the one that resonated with me, the one that, that makes sense to me, is this idea of being generous. That, that what you give away will come back to you in some fashion. And, and I think what's happening here is that Solomon is trying to communicate the idea of, of giving, of helping others you, because there's going to come a time when you may need help. It, to me, is reminiscent of the parable, one of the most complicated parables that Jesus told in Luke chapter 16, the parable of the, the shrewd or dishonest manager, depending on uh, what translation you're using. And in that parable, we have this guy who is, is a steward of sorts in the household of a master, and, and he's in charge of the, the finances of this master. And, and if you skipped over to Luke chapter 16, you have a situation where the rich man is essentially uh, going to fire his steward. And, and as the parable goes, um, the, the rich man called his steward in verse 2 and said to him, What is it that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do. 
so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtor, one, debtors, one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. The manager said to him, take your bill and, and sit down and quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? That man said, a hundred measures of wheat. And the manager said to him, take your bill and write 80. You see, he, 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 he just it seems deceitfully changes the amount that's due for each of these people. And the master, we're told in verse 8 of that parable, Luke chapter 16, verse 8, the master commended him for his shrewdness. This parable is all kinds of backward. Because it, this guy shouldn't be praised for doing something deceitful. And yet, you have to look at how Jesus concludes the parable. It's in verse 9, where Jesus makes an application. He says, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. I, I think the point Jesus is making in the parable is use your time and your resources wisely to build relationships with people so that when you find yourself in a time of need, they'll be receptive to you. I think that's what Solomon is communicating here as well when he says, cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Or, as verse 2 says, give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. In other words, be willing to give, be willing to be generous, be willing to be benevolent, because there might come a time where you need that same attitude of giving and same uh, 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 offering of benevolence turn back to you. You may need to be the recipient of what you're going to be the, the uh, uh, giver of right now. And, and so I think initially what Solomon is calling on in these first two verses may be an attitude of generosity that we need to possess in this crazy world and I think if we compare it to the parable of the shrewd manager, which is a, is a complicated parable in its own right, I, I think we can see some parallels. Guys, what are your initial observations here in these first six verses? Yeah, Kyle, I happen to agree with you on uh, what the message of the first few verses is talking about. And the scholars do disagree on what this could possibly mean about casting bread upon the water or giving a serving to seven and also to eight, but... Verse 2 is what's really interesting to me for us to understand what's going on here and what Solomon's actually trying to say. Is, is Solomon trying to say that you should take your goods and your possessions and split them up into seven or eight places uh, to where if one place is destroyed, the rest will be good, you'll still have the rest? Or you know, is, is he saying that we should you know, go dig a bunch of holes in the ground and put some money there and then go there? You know? He's not saying that, I don't think, but some people tend to think that could be a possibility. Uh, is he saying that we should pay the people that we hire to do work? Some people think that is a possibility of what he's saying in verse 2, but I'm with Kyle. I believe that the best understanding of this verse is, and the best perspective that we could have on this verse is to understand it from a perspective of how wise it is to be, to be liberal in our giving to others. Now, when I was a kid, I... My dad said, uh, son, we need to be liberal givers. And I had always heard the word liberal as the worst thing ever, right? I'm like, no, dad, we can't be liberal. But he's like, that's not what it means, son. You know? So we, we need to be liberal givers. That means giving sacrificially. That means giving all that we have, giving the abundance of things that we have. Not out of the abundance, but... Out of the few, out of all the things that we have, we should be giving it. And how wise it is to do that. How wise it is to give liberally to others. And when it comes to giving, when it comes to our generosity, as, as Kyle put it, we can either be wise or we can be a miser. We can either be one of the wiser or we can be a miser. And the truth is, if you're going to be a miser, we all know those type of people. They're the people who save. They're the people who don't spend. They're the people who are holding on to their money. They're going to be frugal. They're going to do whatever it takes to hold on to every penny that they have, right? Not getting Cokes at restaurants. Not doing this. 
Stan Hogan. Uh, not be, you know, giving Cokes at restaurant or whatever the case might be, right? My dad's not a miser. He's a liberal giver, I promise. But when we think about that, that's what it takes to be a, to someone who's frugal, who holds on to their money, who does everything they can to hold on to their money. But at the end of the day, if you're a miser, the question is, what happens when verse 3 comes? What happens when verse 3 comes, when the clouds are full of rain, when they empty themselves upon the earth, when a tree falls, where is it going to fall? It so happens to fall on your house, or it so happens to fall on your life. What happens to the miser when the clouds unleash the rain on your life? Well, when that happens, that is going to show how you have treated others around you. When you are a miser instead of one of the wiser, you're going to figure out what's happening and how you have lived your life when the clouds descend the rain upon you. When the tree falls upon your house and it's your turn to go through the bad times, the miser is going to get what he has sowed. The wiser decision really is what Solomon is trying to get us to realize is that if we will give liberally to the people around you, that just is going to allow them to give back to us when the clouds descend rain upon us and when trees are falling down around us. When this happens to the miser, uh, they have absolutely nothing to speak for. They have done nothing to evoke any type of emotion, any type of sympathy, any type of compassion or love from their neighbors because they didn't do anything for their neighbors. So when this happens to a miser, there is simply no concern for them because they have had no concern for anyone else but themselves. But when this happens to the wiser, to the people that have been giving liberally to the people around them, the whole community comes to their aid. The whole community, the people that they've affected, the people that they've impacted, that they've given liberally to, are going to come and be there for that person when the rains come, when the floods come and beat upon that house, right? If you've been giving liberally, then the whole people around you will be there for you. So Solomon is saying, if you want to be wiser, don't be a miser. Don't hold on to that money with all you got because at the end of the day, we're going to reap what we sow. We're going to reap what we sow. We're going to get what we have put back in. And if we have been stingy with our acts of kindness and with our billfolds, then we shouldn't expect to get anything different than stinginess and a lack of help from others when it's our turn and when the rains have hit us. And that day will come. Because as the verse says, verse 2, for you do not know what evil will be on earth. The rains will come. The trees will fall. It just depends on who, what type of person we've been based on how that's going to work out for us. And I can think about so many people in my life that have helped me, that have been there for me, that have helped me financially get through school, who have done this and who have done that, and if something were to ever happen to them or they ever needed anything from me, I would do whatever it took and whatever they needed because of what they've done for me, because of the impact they've had on my life. And that's exactly what Solomon's trying to say, I believe, is that if we give liberally, if we serve others in acts of kindness without any realm of expecting to get anything back, it will come back to us one day. If not here, in the next life, when we will be rewarded for the way that we have given to the seven and also to the eight, verse 2 of Ecclesiastes chapter 11. That's just some of the things I'm thinking about in these first six verses. When I read verses 1 through 6, um, I, I see discussion also, uh, you know, on right beside on, on, on giving and, and being gracious in that. I also, I also kind of notice a discussion on not putting all your eggs in one basket because we don't, you don't know it's going to pay off. It, to me, it seems like Solomon verses 1 through 6 is more, more so saying, kind of going back in from chapter 11 in this kind of rant of different Proverbs, which we talked about last week, 
Verses 1 through 6, it seems to me as if he's saying, okay, you don't know what's actually going to pay off in this life under the sun, so don't put all your eggs in one basket. And so one interpretation I've read of verse 1 is, that, you know, and this is just another opinion of this, cast your bread on the surface of the waters, for you will find it after many days. One common interpretation of this is also when it comes to investing in um, putting your money or putting your, you know, your well-being in long-distance ventures. Back then, that would, have, that would have only pretty much meant investing in over-the-sea voyages or something like that. And so casting your bread on the water, saying, I'm going I'm to invest my money on something that I'm putting my money in this today, and it may not come back to you know, pay off three months from now when, they, when, this, when this business venture comes back. And I know that might seem like a stretch of the text here, but I think that also falls right into verse 2, divide your portion to seven or even to eight, for you don't know what misfortune may occur on the earth. And it really, to, to me, rings true in verses, five, uh, verses 6. So you're seeing the morning, do not idle in the evening, in the last part. Um, for you do not know whether morning or evening song will succeed, or whether both of them alike will be good. And so I think, right aside from giving as well, I think you can see a discussion on, there are certain things we know it's going to happen. When the clouds get big and they're full, they're going to drop rain. There's also things we don't understand, like the, the forming of the, you know, a child's bo uh, bones in, in, in his mother's womb or whatever. There are things we can't expect and we can predict, but there's also actions and activities that we don't understand and we cannot um, seek to understand because that's above us. And so because of that, he's, uh, to me it seems like he's saying kind of diversify your investments because when it comes to finding uh, security in this world, don't put all your eggs in this one thing right here. Uh, another thing I'd, I'd like to also mention is verse 4. He who watches the wind will not sow, and he who looks at the clouds will not reap. Don't we, know, don't we all know someone like that? Who's always waiting to maybe, in, in this context, say, I'll plant the garden you know, when this weather happens. Well, after this happens, I'll, I'll till the ground. Or when, when this warm front comes through, after, you know, after this last cold front, then I'll do this. Or... Apply it to any context. Oh, after I get that phone call, then I'll talk to them. Or after I see this, then I'll do that. It's always, I'm waiting to do this based on something else happening. I think that's the, the wisdom Solomon's trying to get across here in verse 4. I will do fill in the blank when it's perfect. And what happens when you wait for only the perfect situation to invest or to work, to labor for something working towards? And so I think it speaks 2,000, you know, more than 2,000 years later to us today saying, don't put off tomorrow what needs to be done today. Yes, you know, when it comes to getting your life right, it's nice to wait for January 1st, right? It, it's, it's nice to have those New Year goal, you know, New Year's resolutions, but why not do it the, the day you decide that? And so I think that's also some wisdom we can take away from the scores. Don't, don't just wait to what seems like the perfect situation. If you know what's right, you know what needs to be done, like, you know, farming here in this situation, then I think you need to go ahead and invest and do that. And then lastly, one thing, just a comparison. I don't think this is necessarily what Solomon's getting across here, but an application point. Verse 3, if the clouds are, are full, they pour out rain upon the earth. That is something we understand. That is something we teach our, our students, our kids in elementary school. When the clouds are full, they pour rain. That's, a, that's an obvious statement. I'd like to read a passage in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 10 and 11. For as the rain and the snow comes down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. The same logic can be applied. That's what God is saying here. Just as the clouds, as they go by, when they get full, they drop that water. He says, when I send my word down, it will be accomplished. And I wonder if that's, that same solid argument can be applied to all of our lives tonight at times when we say, okay, we've received word just as we've received God's love. And it should be, it should be a, an obvious statement for God to look down in my life and say, well, Jay's received my love. Jay's received my word. He has, he has the Holy Spirit in his life. He has my, the, my son's love. He has my investment in, into who he is. Shouldn't he be doing X, Y, and Z? Just as when the cloud is full, it pours, just like Jay's life is full of blessings, shouldn't he be pouring it out? So I wonder if we can apply that to all of our lives tonight as well. Amen.
Um, I'd like to see this uh, in, a, uh, in a development of the theme of this book. And probably I am uh, presenting a, a pretty different view of, these, uh, of the views that uh, our uh, other ministers presented. Um, Solomon is saying constantly, saying that we don't know what tomorrow may bring. So we don't know about the next. Uh, for example, chapter 3, verse 11, uh, he's already said that um, uh, okay, um, so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So we don't know what God uh, did, how God does this uh, in this life under the under the heb I mean under the sun and also chapter 6 verse 12 he repeats that kind of idea uh, and he says uh, in the last sentence for who can tell man what will be after him under the sun and here again we can find uh, we find the same idea in verse 5 uh, the last sentence so you do not know the work of God who makes everything so what uh, the illustration is given, uh, I, I believe, I think, uh, the illustrations are given in uh, ver verses 1 through uh, 5 and 6, especially, yeah, 1 through 4. So what Solomon is trying to say, uh, in my view, is that even if, when, even if we are good now, we can be we can be, you know, measurable, to I mean, tonight or tomorrow. Uh, even if we are full now, but tomorrow, we'll, we can be hungry. So we have to be ready for the darkness that may come tomorrow to us. So what uh, Solomon is trying to say is that not necessarily uh, in this life only, but as our, uh, in our whole life, this life, in this life, we may, we may think that we are good. But in the life that is coming after this life, we may get into the darkness. And it depends on how we live in this life. As we think we have fullness, abundance here. So, I think the first verse, cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. It, the, the first verse gives me the idea that you know, we, we have to be wise uh, in using what we have, in taking advantage of what we have right now, so that we can get something better which is much better uh, after many days, which means, you know, after, after this life, in the, in the you know, future life. So what uh, I see here is, is a kind of um, metaphor or uh, metaphorical expression. This is, uh, this can be easily read as uh, some proverbs or wisdom, how to manage our wealth, how, to, uh, how we have to do good to others. But further than that, I, I don't, I'm not saying that it is not right, but uh, we can go further than that. So uh, if we contrast this life and the future life, then how we do in this life will determine how, we'll, how we will be in the future life. I think that is what uh, Solomon is getting at. And obviously, after that, so you have to fear God and uh, keep his commandment. So he is drawing us, uh, the readers, to the conclusion. Guys, does anybody, do any of you have anything else you'd like to add on these first six verses? Uh, 
before we transition to the second half of the chapter. All right, well, let's turn our attention to verses 7 through 10. We'll read that and then uh, uh, comment on it. Verse 7, Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and dawn of life are vanity. Guys, what are your first impressions here in these last four or five verses? Um, For me, I believe it's a coherent thought all the way from verse 7 to verse 10. I believe Solomon is trying to tell us that even though life under the sun is very difficult, even though all the things he's just talked about in his investigation where he talks about all is vanity, in fact, the very last phrase of this chapter is about vanity, even though all of life under the sun is vanity, there are moments, there are times where we need to enjoy life. That we need to give thanks to God for the life that we've been given. That there are times on earth that we need to enjoy. You know, he starts off verse 8, or, or verse uh, 7, Truly the light is, is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to behold the sun. But if a man lives many years and rejoices in them all, let him remember the days of darkness, for they will be many. So he's saying instead of thinking about the days of darkness, instead of focusing only on the days of darkness, they are many. There are many days of darkness. It's also a good thing if we are old enough to have witnessed so many suns, to have witnessed the great pleasure it is to look upon the sun and to bask in in the warmth that the sun gives off. And then I really want to focus on verse 9. Because when I was studying it, uh, it really confused me. Um, So I think it's important for us to talk about it, and I'm sure the others have thoughts on this. But my translation says, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these, God will bring you into judgment. And so in my translation, it sounds like God, uh, like Solomon is saying, to walk in the ways of your heart, to uh, walk in the sight of your eyes. And then the New American Standard, I believe, it says, follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. uh, Does that sound like something we read in the Bible? Uh, In fact, it sounds very opposite of what we might read in the Bible. To follow your impulses. The impulses of your heart, the desires of your eyes. You know, I think it, the, the, the Bible says man's thoughts are on evil continually. Genesis 6, that's why he destroyed the earth. I believe the Bible tells us that we have the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, and that's what keeps us from God. That's what keeps us from having a relationship with God, and that's what separates us from God is sin is when we act upon the impulses and the desires of our eyes. So is that what God is trying to get us to to get out of this inspired text? Is he trying to say that we should follow the impulse of our heart, that we should go after what our heart desires? You know, if we read that and we don't understand what's trying to be said, that could be just a free ticket to go do whatever you want, right? Right? Obviously, that's not what God is saying. That's not what Solomon is trying to say. And in fact, isn't that what went wrong with Solomon in the first place? Solomon, at the beginning of this book, talks about all the things he did out of the impulse, out of the, what his heart desired. He didn't keep himself from any of it. He took all of it, and he experienced all of it under the sun. He experienced it all, and it wasn't worth it, right? So, obviously, something is wrong. Spoiler alert to the youth out there. This is not your ticket to just do whatever you want, uh, to go sow those wild oats, right? What a terrible statement. Uh, You know, we're just going to go sow them wild oats, and then they'll be back. You know, that's a horrible mindset. I don't know who thought of that, 
That's terrible. You got something on that? Yeah, I had a parent. Ooh, coming in hot. I had a parent one time, not here, say, you know, I just wish my son would sow his wild oats and just come back. Just let, just get it done and just come back to me. Yeah. I said, okay, well, that's, that's one mindset to have. Yeah. So, I, I mean, obviously that's not <laughs> what the Bible uh, condones. It's not what any connotation that this verse is trying to give off. So what is the verse trying to say, you know, and I think for us to start understanding this, I think Kyle was the one, maybe it was Kyle last week, somebody else, but talking about how Solomon became king at a very young age. Was that you, Kyle, last week? Well, if it's smart, it was me. If it wasn't, it wasn't. Well, you know, we'll let them be the judge here. Uh, but Solomon became king at a very young age, right? Since he was the prince of Israel and, and became king at an early age, he probably didn't really get to enjoy his childhood. If we were to go back and read 1 Kings 3 and verse 7, uh, Solomon says, Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David, but I am a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. That's how Solomon described himself when talking to God. He described himself as a little child who doesn't know what he's doing. That's how early he was when he became king. So could it be as we look at this verse, as we understand this entire investigation of life in the book of Ecclesiastes under the sun, that one of the things that he is thinking we can look back on with joy and with happiness is childhood. Is childhood is, is what it's like to be a child. What it's like to be a young man and the heart that a child has. And how children are always learning new things and are very curious about things and wanting to go on adventures. And if you've ever seen a young child look at things with eyes wide open because it's one of the first times they've ever seen it, they've ever witnessed it, they've ever beheld it with their own eyes. And so they're just investigating. That's, I think, what Solomon's talking about. He's not saying to follow your impulses in a sinful manner. He's not saying to follow your heart and your desires in a sinful manner, but to follow those impulses that a child has, to enjoy life on earth, to have the heart that a child has. You know, I have a few nephews, and we'll show them, we'll, we'll, we'll go on walks, we'll play games with them, we'll do all this stuff, and they're just so observant. Why? Because they've never experienced it before. It's amazing to them. Every single thing that you give them, any little present, they open it up, and they got 15 of them, but they're like, oh, it's another bear. You know, it's like, you've already, you got 10 bears, but this one's new. So it's amazing, right? Solomon didn't get to really bask in his childhood, I don't think. And so he's saying, life under the sun, yes, we've talked about how terrible it is. But as we were talking about earlier, the same way it's good for an older man to look back at all those sons that he has witnessed. All those sunsets, all those sunrises, it's also good to be able to look back to your childhood. And so he's telling the children to enjoy your childhood, to walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. And so I think that's what he's talking about here, in my opinion. I think that's what Solomon is saying in the passage. I do not, however, believe he's saying, go out and do whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want. And if you do an investigation of the words here, it's not describing any sinful activity. Uh, the, the words impulse and the words desires is not the same words that we get for sinful connotation of words. These are the words simply to describe youthful happiness and adventurous children. That's what I think he's telling them. He's trying to tell them to bask in that innocence. The innocence that you have as a child. Because those days don't last long. Because once those days are over, you're forever in the vain life under the sun where there is sin, where there is clouds raining, where there are trees falling, where there are all these things happening. Mingu's talking about all the things we can't control. As a child, you don't have to think about those things. You don't have to worry about those things. So he's saying, rejoice, O young man, in your youth. Let your heart cheer in you in the days of your youth. And I think that's what he's trying to say. And the question is, well, Ben, why does he follow that up with some 
sort of warning? Why does he follow it up if, if, if it's not sinful? If, if it's not sinful, why does he follow it up with some sort of stern warning? But I believe it's easy for us to understand what the warning is. In the end of verse 9 it said, But know that for all these God will bring you into judgment. So he's following this up with a warning, and I believe it's to remind them that even though you need to enjoy your youth and go on little adventures and be curious, it's a reminder that there are consequences to every decision you make. There are consequences to every decision you make. And so is the, quest, the question is, is, is he saying that the... That these desires, these impulses are supposed to be simple. No, we've already gone over that. So why the warning? Well, let me put it this way. Is it wrong for a group of kids to start playing a game of pickup baseball in the neighborhood sandlot? I hope not, because I did that. You know, we had a neighborhood sandlot across from our house, and we would meet up with the neighborhood kids, and, and, and we would play uh, baseball. And we would play football, and we would play all this other stuff in the neighborhood sandlot, an empty lot. Nobody was using, right? Somebody moves in, the sandlot was gone. Horrible two months for the fam, right? But we would play baseball. We would play sports. It's not wrong for kids to do that, to have that happiness, to have that joy. But let me ask you this. Is there a consequence if one of those balls go and hit somebody's window? and break somebody's window, do you not have to go over there and, and tell them you're sorry and give them your dad's number, right? And all the things you got to do when that happens? Yeah, there's consequences for even youthful activity. And so to me, there's no difference in what Solomon is talking about here in that example we just gave, that there are consequences for everything that we do. God is watching everything. And there are consequences that we have to take into account even in the freedom that is of childhood, if we take that for granted and we go too far, and we, chapter 12, verse 1, forget our Creator in the days of our youth, then we're in trouble. And then lastly, you know, verse 10, that's why we need to remove the sorrow from our heart. That's why we need to put away the evil in the flesh so that we can become those youthful, happy, joyous children again. That's what I think the text is talking about. And, you know, well, why is childhood vain if that's what we're supposed to be going for? Well, the only thing that's vain about childhood is the fact that it doesn't last that long. That childhood doesn't last nearly long enough. So that's what I think mainly verse 9 is trying to say in our text tonight. Well, I've, I've been tempted to make this joke before, and I think I'm going to now. Going after Ben sometimes is like going last at a potluck. You're just fighting for scraps. There's not much more to say on verses 9 and 10. I, I, I'll, I'll, get, I'll give you what I got. but People feel that way at a potluck as well after I go. <laughs> no, I totally agree. I think that's a, that's a great interpretation, or, or a great way of explaining verses 9 and 10. I do believe that last comment in verse 9, it, it's that parameter he, he's putting up. The, the beginning of verse 9 does not have to be seen in a, in a sinful way at all. I think when you read it, it sounds very like, I cannot believe he just said that. Because we don't want to encourage that outright when it comes to how he says it. But I think that's when he says in verse 9, yet, know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. It's that, it's that parameter, that, that wall. So, okay, enjoy the impulse of your heart. Follow your you know, curiosity, whatever. Or know there are, there are consequences. I think about a governor on an engine. You know, you can go up to this one speed, and it's fine, but at that point, at that point it cuts in and it cuts you off. And so it's, I, I kind of think about that in the same way. Um, the only other comment, really, I had from this, this passage is kind of bouncing on the other side of what Ben said in verse 8. You know, I think it's, it's, it's just as leveled off, and we need to remember the good times, and there's so many reasons for that. You know, one of the commands that we have from the New Testament over and over again is rejoice always. But I think in verse 8 we see the other side of that, They're kind of the other side of the coin, and let them remember the days of darkness, for they will be many. You know, we don't, it's hard to be around someone that's like an Eeyore, and that's all they do, is remember the days of darkness, and doom and gloom is their life. But there is a lot of good things that can come from that. 
And there's a lot of wisdom in, in reflecting on difficult times. And sometimes we keep kind of running our head into a wall because we're not learning lessons from a difficult time we've already come through. You know, I'm the worst, and we've talked about this, about compartmentalizing at times. If something difficult has happened or something, you know, that wasn't just as pleasant, I'll just lock that away and say, okay, well, glad that's over. And I'll just keep coming into that issue of maybe something I should have learned from that because I was like, well, I don't want to think about that anymore. And so I think that's another kind of piece, another side of the coin from verse 8. And uh, the, the wisdom and remember, and I think that's why he says that. And let them remember. Let him remember the days of darkness where they will be many. But don't focus on that completely. And then again in verse 9 and 10, I think that was well put. Uh, remember the good times because, uh, because of what can come from that. And then in verse 10, but that's not all they are. Good times are not what this life are for. Um, the prime of life, whenever that is, uh, that's still not the point of this life because it too, like everything else Solomon has pursued in this whole book, is, it's fleeting. It, it, all it is is vanity. So even if you do remember the good times, remember the bad times, and you really make the most of that, of that period, of that early part of your life, whatever it may be, always be looking to the, the thing that's actually important. And that's the beauty of the next chapter. I mean, that's what, exactly what he goes into in verse 1 of chapter 12. And so I think that's a, another thing we can, we can walk away from, from this, sec, from this section. Go ahead. Um, uh, yeah, I think uh, that's pretty much it, but I would like to add something that... Um, you know, this, uh, there is another, I mean, big topic, I mean, big theme that Solomon is constantly saying that, you know, judgment is coming. God's judgment is coming. And after our life under the sun, we will be at the judgment seat of God. So that's what uh, Solomon is warning here again. And uh, he says, uh, verse 7, light is good. I mean, sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So in, in verse 9, he says, uh, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the, in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. So, um, you know, like Ben pointed out, uh, it could be understood as something um, very uh, sounding liberal, but, you know, I think it depends on how our heart is and how our eyes is. You know, our eyes and our heart can be right or can be wrong. If our heart is right, then we have to follow our heart. And if, we, if our eyes are seeing the right things, then following our eyes is not right. I mean, it's not wrong. It is not a problem. So what is uh, really important is that we have to make our heart right. And we have to make our eyes see good things and right things and godly things. And that's what Jesus said in uh, his Sermon on the Mount. For example, chapter uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 22, the, the eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light, but if your eye is bad, uh, your whole body will be full of darkness. And uh, interestingly, before these verses, he said, uh, Jesus said, lay up your treasure in heaven, and in the, in the, at the last uh, section, he said, I'm sorry, last sentence, he said, for where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. So what our eyes are seeing depends on what we have in our heart. So what Jesus is saying is that fix your heart that you can get the right judgment, righteous judgment before the judgment sit. So I think Solomon is saying the same thing here. Okay. It's okay for you to rejoice, enjoy your life under the sun, but you have to remember that you will be at the seat of the judgment, and God will see your heart and what you have seen under the sun. So watch your heart, watch your eyes. If they are having the right things, 
and seeing the right things. I really like verse 10. In the English Standard Version, it says, Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body. I'm, I'm, I'm not pleased with the ESV's translation of this text, so I'm turning over to the New American Standard. It says, So remove sorrow from your heart and keep pain away from your body. Um, again, not one that I'm that pleased with, so I'm going over to the New King James. Anyway, I'm taking you on a, showing you how my mind works through texts in a way. Look at the New King James translation of that if you have it. Remove sorrow from your heart and put away evil from your flesh. It's very interesting to me because the word that's translated pain in the New American Standard and the English Standard Version can also be translated evil. And for me, when I look at verse 10, I see Solomon giving some very um, good advice for how to live a life that's enjoyable. See, there's an emphasis here on enjoying life, both in verse 8 and in verse 9. But how are you going to enjoy it? Well, you're going to have to remove sorrow, or as in some other translations say it, anxiety from your heart. And you're going to have to put away evil from your life. Really, really could, couldn't we all agree that that advice is beneficial for every one of us to put away sorrow or anxiety to put away evil from our lives wouldn't life be much more enjoyable much more pleasant much more peaceful if we could get rid of the anxiety that attacks and if we could keep ourselves from pursuing that which is evil See, I think Solomon closes out here as, as he's addressing the youthfulness. He's saying, here's your guideposts. If you can do these things, you can have a great life. And, and, and the, ultimately, the, the key to removing anxiety and to uh, preventing evil is realizing the basic principle that you reap what you sow. See, when, at the end of verse 9, when he says, Know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment, I can't help but think of the reaping principle and, and what Paul writes in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. He says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. That warning that Solomon gives there at the end of verse 9, that warning about judgment is a warning to realize that you do reap what you sow. And so we need to be cognizant of that, both in the way we deal with our, our anxiety and in the way we prevent ourselves from pursuing that which is evil. Guys, do you all have any other comments you want to share on this concluding section of the, the text? Um, I think uh, what we really have to get from this text is that uh, we have to remind ourselves always, always, that the judgment is coming to us. And nobody is exception from that. Uh, recently, I went to an ER room, and I was enjoying uh, my health so far, I mean, until that time. But uh, something happened after the kidney stone removal surgery. I mean, the doctor, when he released me, uh, told me to drink a lot of water. And I just, uh, but I didn't take so much attention to the warning. So I didn't uh, take so, uh, enough water. But later, about a couple of days later, last, I mean, two weeks ago, Sunday, I, you know, developed a complication because I didn't drink a lot of water. And the complication could kill, could have killed me uh, because the blood clot, cl I mean, <laughs> stuck in my, uh, in my body. So I learned a lot and it humbled me so much. And I realized that I should have followed the authorities' warning to drink a lot of water after the surgery. So if I knew that that could, that could happen if I didn't follow 
the authorities, you know, warning. I would have dr uh, drunk a lot of water, you know. I would not uh, have ignored his warning. So, remembering that the judgment is coming, and we will be at the judgment seat with everybody else, then will I mean that only that thing, I mean, that thing alone can uh, change us, change our lifestyle under the sun so much as we need. Thank you, Mingu. I'm going to ask Ben to lead us in a closing prayer this evening. Let's pray. Our God and our eternal Father in heaven, we thank you for the day that you blessed us with to come and to worship this morning. And we pray that we did that in spirit and in truth in a way that uh, glorifies your name. And we thank you so much for uh, this body of believers. We pray that you'll bless us as we continue to try to go and do likewise as we try to become your son's hands and feet in this community. We pray that you will bring more fruit and more opportunity for us as the days and weeks go by as we try to bring glory to your name and to give you all of the gratitude and glory that you deserve. Lord, thank you for our Bible study tonight and our period of worship. We pray that it has been beneficial to all of us and that has challenged us and made us want to walk closer to you. We thank you so much for the blessing of your word and how it speaks to us. It is living and is active and it pierces into us. And we pray that we will not only uh, be moved here, but to go out into the world and be moved. Lord, thank you so much for the elders, the shepherds, this congregation that look over our souls. We pray that you bless them, comfort them in their decision making, and help us to follow them in every way that they lead us. Lord, we have many on our hearts and our minds that are sick, uh, that are battling the virus, that have relatives that are battling the virus, and those who are battling loneliness and isolation and different issues at this time. We pray for all of them. We pray for those who have lost loved ones. And we especially want to come before your throne tonight and bring the name of Dan Winkler to you. He means so much to so many and to the brotherhood at large, and we pray that you will be with him, be with him as he deals with cancer, as he has the surgery, pray that that will be successful. We pray that you will rid him of the cancer that is in him and that you will bring him back to his normal walk and the impact that he has on the kingdom. We pray that you'll be with Diane as, as she takes care of him and manages so much at this time and we Lord we just pray that you will be with the Winkler family and thank you so much for what they mean to each of us Lord bring us back at the next point in time and help us to be your servants in between then in Jesus name we pray amen <laughs>